0: A good way to think about 2 Samuel 12 is maybe like this. What happened to David? If you were to read the story maybe later on in the Jerusalem Post or maybe it would be an episode of 2020, and you would ask the question, what was the anatomy of David's fall? What led to this? We we have dug that out. And, And this series, by the way, will be available out in the courtyard in the next week or two, but... So you can pick up all four teachings. But as we look at what happened, David fell because he saw something. And he, instead of just turning away, he took the next steps downward. And he ended up being with a woman that was not his wife. And he committed adultery. And when he he, uh, had done what he had done, instead of coming clean, he went into what we called cover-up mode. And one of the messages, part two of this message from 2 Samuel 12, was the cover-up. And what David tried to do is get Uriah to come home, be with his wife. That way it would cover who the child belonged to. And David tried to do that. And it didn't work. Uriah was too honorable. Uriah would not be with his wife, so David sent him back to the battlefield with his own death warrant. Uriah died. David married Bathsheba, brought her into his home. And maybe David felt like he had got away with it. But if we try to cover up our sin, our sin will what? It will find us out. And God knew what was going on. At the end of chapter 11, says that what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. and Nathan came to David and told him a parabolic, a parable story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man, all he really had was this little ewe lamb that he had purchased with his money. The little ewe lamb sat at the table with the family, ate from the master's hand, drank from his cup. Man, he really loved this little ewe lamb. And then the rich man had a visitor come into town. Probably somebody important. And the rich man had many flocks and herds. And instead of taking from his many flocks and herds, he went in stealthily, with trickery or using his power and stole the one little ewe lamb from the poor man, killed it, prepared it for his guest and took the one thing that the poor man and his family had. And when David heard the story, David didn't know it was about him. David was enraged. And maybe he said something like this, reading between the lines, where is that man? Who is that man? Wait till I get my hands on that man. You ever been there before? Ever heard a story that just makes you filled with outrage. And then Nathan, with those famous words that echo through time. You are that man. The man that you're so angry with, the man that you say deserves to die, you are that man. David had to be stunned. And Nathan went on and began to declare what was going to happen to David as a consequence of his sin. What you did in secret is going to happen openly. The sword's never going to leave your house. You used the Ammonite sword to kill Uriah. Now the sword's not going to leave your house. And David had to swim in the consequences of his sin. Revelation 2 is where I want you to take a peek just for a second. I know you've all probably heard it before, but it's the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is addressing seven churches, so this is not written to unbelievers. It's written to churches, the church at Ephesus. We all know the letter to the Ephesians. And as much as he commends them about what they do well, they work hard, verse 2, Revelation 2, 2. They put people to the test. They've exposed those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. They've proved them, found them to be false. They persevere. They endure for his name, Revelation 2, 3. They have even not grown weary. But the one thing that the Lord of the church had against the church at Ephesus was these famous words. You have left your first love. If you were to capture what happened to David, David was chosen by God. David was a man after God's own heart. If you were to ask the question, what is a man or a woman after God's own heart? Wouldn't you say that a good way to think about it is someone who loves God? Because you're supposed to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So David had a heart that was in love with God, but he left that first love. He forgot who he was. When we sin, go back to 2 Samuel 12, and you, you guys will note in verse 5 of Revelation 2, there's, there's what they should do. Remember from where, from where you have fallen. Repent. Return to your first love. There's something that you can do after you fall. You can repent, you can return. That's what David is about to do now. He's about to return to his first love. When we sin, we forget who we are. We forget that commitment, that covenant relationship that we're in. We commit sometimes spiritual adultery on the Lord. We we think, well, maybe, maybe that's not enough. You know, when people leave their covenant with their spouse, when they leave their first love, when they cheat on them, that's in essence what is being said. This is not enough for me. I I have to have more. Think about it. You're not enough for me. That's basically what we're saying. That's what we're saying to God. And this is hard to take, but here's the truth of it. When we sin against God, what we're saying is, you're not enough for me. Your blessings, the vitality of life, your Holy Spirit... Uh, I got I to gotta find thrill over here. I got to find more over here. And then we go and we eat the dangling carrot. And what do we find? It is filled with brittle cement. <laughs> it's nothing. It, it never, sin never produces what it promises, does it? And so you have the cover up, the confrontation, and now the confession. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, we pick up the story. Nathan's told David the stunning story, and David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, 2 Samuel 12, 13, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. You know, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sin from us. I think it was Corey ten Boom who said, God has cast our sin into the sea of forgetfulness and posted a no fishing sign there. It's pretty cool. He is no longer counting your sins against you in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19. You have the righteousness of Christ, which that chapter later says that because we're in Christ, we are righteous before God. We are righteous. Clean before God. Yet when we sin, as I've mentioned in previous weeks as we've studied this topic, even though positionally we are right with God, we're forgiven, we still have to deal with consequences. And that's what David is going to have to deal with now. Even though he would not die, the Torah said that murderers and adulterers died, and that's what David was. He had committed adultery and murder. You can reference Leviticus 20, verse 10. Leviticus 24, 17, Exodus 21, 12. David had sinned against God. He was worthy of death, yet he would not die. You remember the woman caught in the act of adultery? Caught in the very act in John chapter 8. The law says she should die. What do you say? Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Right? They were trying to trap Jesus, no doubt. So Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground and All the commentators on John 8 wonder, what did he write? Was he writing everybody's names in the crowd and their sins? There's a possibility that he was drawing a cross in the ground. The Greek allows for that, by the way. We don't know for sure. But Jesus rose up and said, okay, he who is without sin, you go ahead and throw the first rock at her. We'll take note of who you are. Go ahead. Well, from the oldest to the youngest, they began, or the youngest to the oldest, I don't remember which way it goes. They began to drop the stones and walk away. Woman, where are your accusers? There are none, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go, remember, and sin no more. Don't put yourself in this position again. If you've fallen, look, we all make mistakes. Don't go back and do it again. You know, Jesus is, people talk a lot about Jesus, and, you know, oftentimes they talk in settings where, you know, Jesus is gracious. G- Jesus will, you know, uh, he, he never said words to condemn this or that. You know, whenever Jesus confronted people, he was incredibly gracious, except with the Pharisees who were hypocrites. Right? People who you thought he might condemn, he didn't. But then he would say to them, Don't do it again. <laughs> right? Don't repeat this, the man at the pool of Bethesda, so that something worse may happen to you. David wrote Psalm 32, if you turn over there in the wake of what happened with Bathsheba, Psalm 32. Go to the book of Psalms. The Psalms are always incredible. Uh, to read through. They minister to our hearts and souls. They're real. They're raw. They have stuff in there about joy and rejoicing and stuff in there about hard times. Psalm 32. This is called a, a Psalm of David, a mass skill. I think when you look up the Hebrew term for mass skill, um, scholars are not sh- exactly sure what the Hebrew means. But it could be something like this, a song to the wise. It's a good way to think about a mass skill. It's just a heading on a psalm, a psalm to the wise. So here's what it says. This is what David wrote, Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Those of you who have studied the book of Romans know that, Impute is an important word because the idea of sin uh, being imputed. Um, Jesus Christ takes our sin as though He had committed it and He imputes righteousness to us. It's kind of an accounting term where He's credited His righteousness to our bank account and our sin went to His account. How blessed. Is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David was deceitful in his sin with Bathsheba all the way through, through his cover up. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. David wrote this psalm most likely to reflect on the year that went by in his cover up. Remember, when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, the baby is basically born. So about a year has gone by. And David is going to describe that year. And what he describes is a man who was groaning all day long. Now, those who are chronologists of the Bible believe that David was about 50 at this point of his life. I told you he might have been having a midlife crisis. But groaning all day long at 50 makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? For those of you who have turned 50 or are beyond, (laughs) describes quite a few of my days, groaning all the day long. But anyway, we'll move on from that. For day and night, here's why he groaned. Thy hand, God's hand, was what? It was heavy upon him. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah, think about it. It's a pause in the song. It's a place to meditate. My vitality was drained away. Why? Because God was pressing on me hard. God's heavy hand. His disciplinary hand. Have you ever seen someone, maybe you haven't seen them for a while, and you understand that they've been caught in a sinful lifestyle, and you see them, and they look like they've aged beyond their years? You know, if you ever see addicts Sometimes they're in their 20s and 30s and they look like they're 20 or 30 years older than they actually are. Their vitality has been drained away. They've been been beat up by sin. And here, because God loved David so much, God was heavy upon David. He wouldn't let David get away with it. David said, I was drained like I had a, a fever in the summertime. I acknowledge my sin to thee. Verse five, there's a shift now. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Selah, pause, think about it. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. The New Living Translation says, that they may not drown in the flood waters of judgment. You are my hiding place, verse 7. You, prepare, you do preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. When you sing on a Sunday morning, sing about what God's delivered you from. Amen. When we sing salvation songs, we can't forget who we were before we met Jesus under the judgment of God without hope in the world. I will instruct you Says David, and teach you, verse 8, in the way that which you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. <laughs> Some of you may need to underline that. I underlined it. Would you join me? <laughs> Don't be like a mule. You ever seen a mule who just doesn't want to go where they need to go? They're fighting it and the master's pulling on them and they're skidding out. Don't be that way. Whose trappings include a, a bit and a bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. That was the right time to shout. (laughs) All right. 2 Samuel, back there. So what's going to happen? Well, the sword's never going to leave his house. What he did in secret will be done publicly. It speaks of sexual sin. 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, however... Because even though David was forgiven, even though God was not going to deal with him according to his sin, however, by this deed, 14 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child also that is born to you sadly shall surely die. This, uh, the enemies of the Lord will blaspheme because of you is quoted by Paul in Romans 2.24. Just write it down. Romans 2.24, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Listen to this story. Stuart Briscoe tells about having to deal with a fellow employee who had embezzled a large sum of money from the bank for which they both worked. The reason the man embezzled was that he had two wives and two families to support. He was a polygamist. When he was apprehended and fired, he stunned everyone by saying, quote, I'm very sorry for what I've done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday at our local church. Briscoe says that in the following weeks, he spent a great part of his time mending the damage done by the man's blatant inconsistency at the bank. To his chagrin, he found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, but were quick to dismiss the church he belonged to as quote unquote, a bunch of hypocrites. The gospel he professed to believe was a lot of hogwash in their opinion. And the God he claimed to serve, they believed non existent. Close quote. Look, we're not going to be perfect in the world, but if we're trying to live the Jekyll and Hyde life, if we're trying to live on both sides of the fence, the world is watching. Here's a man that's embezzling money from a bank to live a sinful lifestyle, and then he's got the gall to ask the question, should he preach at his church? On Sunday, I was in a class in Colorado. There was a man that was from a church in New York, and he said that it was common knowledge at this particular fellowship that he'd once been part of that the pastor of the church had a mistress on the side. Common knowledge. Common knowledge. And no one was willing to deal with the pastor because in that denomination, he was the man. What? How could anybody in their right mind sit there and listen to that man? Now, look, any man who preaches to you on a Sunday could say he's the chief of sinners. So don't get me wrong. I'm talking about a man who's an open rebellion unrepentant rebellion towards God. What does he have to say to anybody? Now, if he leads you to the foot of the cross, that's another story completely. And anybody who has the privilege of teaching a Bible study or any kind of platform to preach the truth could say to you, we don't feel worthy to preach what we preach. All week long, we struggle with the same issues that everybody struggles with. But here's the thing. We don't want to be... A hypocrite. A hypocrite is a phony. It's someone who's playing a religious game. What do you think the enemies of the Lord would say now? Oh, there's David. Yeah. The so-called man after God's own heart. Did you read the article? Did you see it in the, in the grocery line? The mad man after God's own heart. The, the hand-picked one. And who gets the blasphemy? Who do they blaspheme when this happens? God. So that is motivation for us to try to live the right kind of life. Now, Nathan went to his house. He left David. And then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow, that's Bathsheba, bore to David. So the child was very sick, verse 15. Just what the Lord said he was going to do, he did, he struck the child. Now, I have no easy, comfortable words to share with you about why this happened? Because some of you are sitting there and you are thinking the same thing. Any reader of this is thinking, why the child? Why does the child have to pay the price for the parent's sin? Well, one thing that we need to do when we're studying our Bibles is to understand that this particular judgment is particular to David and Bathsheba. Because in the New Testament, there was a theology that had developed among the rabbis that if someone had a child died in the womb or maybe uh, died just out of the womb or there was some sort of birth defect or blindness or deafness, then somebody had to sin. John chapter 9. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither he nor nor his parents sinned, this has occurred that the glory of God might be made manifest in this man. Be careful, because it's easy to sit in judgment and say, well, something sinful must have gone on here. Not necessarily. This particular judgment is, uh, just say, I'll just say it, particular to David. We need to be careful. Here's a, here's a parallel example, or at least it's, It's an example that you can kind of take with this. The rich young ruler. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Does that apply to everybody? I hope not. I hope it's particular to the rich young ruler. Why? Because his God was money. And here, this child is going to die. Teach me good discernment and knowledge. For I believe in thy com- commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Psalm 119, 66 and 67. But now I keep your word. And so David therefore inquired 16 of God for the child. David fasted. He went and lay all night on the ground. The man who had disregarded and despised God now desperately sought God. You know, when we get the heavy hand upon a go- uh, of God upon us, when we suffer some consequences, it often drives us to God. You ever been there before? You ever had to look in the mirror and go, you know what, I've created a mess. And sometimes you have to go crawling back to God. And you know, God invites us to a throne of grace, not judgment, that we might receive mercy and help in time of need. Don't run away, run to him. In fact, that's probably I would say that's why his heavy hand's been upon you. And so David goes to God. He inquires of God for the child. He's praying. And the elders of his household stood beside him, 17, in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with him. They were saying to David, come, you need to eat something, come. And David said, no, I'm not eating. I'm not doing anything. I'm staying on my face before the Lord. And they became concerned. And he prayed and he pleaded for the child. And he prayed and he pleaded for the child. I was listening to Dr. Charles Stanley. And he was saying, you know, when we pray, we usually talk about three potential responses from God to our prayers. He'll either say yes, no, or wait there's a fourth option, and it's from 2 Corinthians 12. And the fourth option is, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, I don't know if you've put that into your uh, pot when you're considering the potential answers to your prayer. Yes, no, wait, or my grace is sufficient for you. But sometimes that's God's answer. I'm not going to lift this from your life right now. You're just going to have to lean upon my grace. And I don't understand that. And David was a man after God's own heart, and he prayed, and he was on his face, and he was fasting. And praying and fasting is a wonderful thing to do, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to move God in your direction. God is sovereign. Sometimes we think, well, if things get really desperate, I'll skip breakfast. (laughs) Do you see me, Lord? I didn't have my egg waffle this morning. I'm really tuned in. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that can't be a good thing, but I'm saying there's, this is not about magical formulas and pulling the right lever at the right time. God is God. And then it happened. On the seventh day, the child died. The child lived seven days. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. It may be that David fasted this whole time. It may be that he was on his face this whole time. They said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? He's been so inconsolable. He he hasn't wanted to eat or talk to us. If we tell him the child's dead after him praying, perhaps for all seven days, what's he gonna do? Maybe he'll harm himself. Look, harming yourself is never the answer. Never. Because God is gracious. But they were concerned that maybe David might try to take his life. And there are many in our modern age that think that somehow that's the answer. That's not the answer. Suicide is not the answer. God is the answer. And so David was crying out. And the servants were afraid. And can I just say to you, David was a changed man. His circumstances didn't change, but David changed. Because everything that David had done in the Adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the year that passed was about him. It was about his flesh. It was about the cover-up. It wasn't about God and it wasn't about others. But now, seven days on his face, guess what happened? David was a new man. Circumstances didn't change. David changed. You know, David was acting more like Uriah now. He was showing honor and deference. The Lord had his attention. The servants were fearful. David sought the Lord. And when David saw that his servants were whispering together, <laughs> David perceived that the child was dead. And so he said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. And so David arose from the ground, 20, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord and worshipped almost like Job. Job, after his terrible losses, what does he go do? He worships the Lord. David has a child die, and he goes in and he worships. And he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set before him, obviously food, and he ate. David got up, he washed. He was a bit perplexing to the servants of the house because he kind of Before the child died, he was in mourning as though the child had died. Seven days was a typical period of mourning after death. And it's like David mourned the child before he died. And it was perplexing to the servants. Why is he doing this? Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done, 21? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This particular verse has brought 2 Samuel 12, 23, a lot of comfort to a lot of hearts because it seems to indicate that when a child dies, a child can't really make a decision, a child that's lived seven days, a decision for the Lord seems to be in heaven. Well, some people would say, well, maybe David's just talking about the grave, that the child died and one day David's gonna go to the grave as well. And so he's just talking about, I can't, he can't come back to me. He's not going to come back from the dead, at least not now. But I, I will go to him. Maybe he means I'll just go to the grave. But look, everybody goes to the grave. What hope is that? And By the way, in Psalm 23, David told us where he was going to go. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was going to heaven. Not because David was the best guy in the world, but because God is a God of grace and had made a covenant with David. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I know many of you in this room have probably experienced loss of a child. Maybe for some of you, it was a child before they were ever born. Maybe it was a a child that was born premature. Maybe it was something that happened in the first couple of years. In third world countries, it's very common that babies die because there's malnutrition and there's not the same medical sciences that we have here in the West. In fact, I think the the mortality rate for children under the age of two is is frighteningly high. I was on the phone with my mom this last week and we were talking about uh, two uh, children that she had that she lost. My mom was six months pregnant in 1963 and uh, the medical advances weren't the same as today, and in 1963, she gave birth to Michael and Nicholas. Uh, one of them lived a few hours. One of them lived about a day, and both of them ended up dying. Uh, the, one of them was named Michael William Lance, which happens to be my name. I was born two years later. So some of you, I shared uh, a while back that you know, I was talking to my mom on the phone one time, and she told me, reminded me about this story. And, and I said, Mom, the, that boy had my name, and he was born before me. And then I asked the next logical question. If, they, if the twins would have lived, would you have had me? And my mom, being honest, said, Well, we, your sister was born later, but, you know, to be honest with you, Michael, I'm not sure we would have had another baby had they lived. And I was like, Gulp? But here's what my mom said. She said, but I believe that you were supposed to be born and have this name because I believe that God had a plan for your life. And I'm like, wow. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why one lives and another dies. That's in God's hands. But I'll tell you this. And I'll say this. This is my personal view I'll let you wrestle with it. I believe that God is gracious and that children that die are with the Lord. And that's what I hold on to from words that Jesus shared in the New Testament about don't hinder the little kids from coming to me for to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. And this verse and a few others. So David said, I can't bring him back. I know there's lots of times when you know, children and loved ones die this, this time of the year. I know it's going to be hard for some of you. You've lost loved ones. And, you know, you, you would probably say there's nothing I wouldn't give to bring them back for a Thanksgiving or a Christmas. And, and we can't. We don't control life and death. But can I give you some good news? There's going to be a banquet in the future that's going to be better than any Christmas you've ever had. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And a great reunion day is coming. And I even have hope that I'm going to meet Michael William Lance. (laughs) And Nicholas. And if I can speak for the two beautiful ladies down here. A young boy named Bobby. Try not to cry. Twenty-four. So David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son. And his name, they named him Solomon. By the way, um, just a side note, the baby that died, died after being alive for seven days. And Jewish families named the babies on day number eight because they circumcised all the males on the eighth day, as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? So it would appear that the baby never was given a name because it didn't make it to the eighth day. Maybe there's something here with the number seven and the baby dying on the seventh day. Maybe there's something here um, that it didn't make it to day eight, but then a new child came. Eight is a number of new beginnings. I'll let you think about that, but... David was intimate now with his wife Bathsheba and a son did come. Another son came and his name was Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he got a second name. We know him as Solomon, but he was also named Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Just the names really quick. Solomon means something like this. It ties uh, to the idea of shalom in Hebrew. It means something like this, Yahweh's peace, or get this, it could mean, Solomon's name could mean Yahweh's restoration. And what's interesting about that is, you know, peace in many ways is a restoration. We're at war and we get peace. And so what was... The years that the locust had eaten, if you will, would be restored through Solomon. We know the great leader that he's going to become, even though he's going to have his own issues. And then uh, Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. And I just wrote in my notes that maybe the message is, David, Bathsheba, I still love you. Yes, hard consequences have come, but you can start again. And I'm going to give you a young boy, and his name is going to be restoration. His name is going to be, I love you. Don't give up. Now, I'm going to ask the ushers, we're about to partake in the elements of communion, to get ready to hand out communion. I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 51, and we'll finish this morning with Psalm 51. So please turn there. Please prepare your hearts to go to the Lord's table, and um, I just want to encourage you if you're not sure where you're at with the Lord today get right with him and and this is this is an opportunity I think going through Psalm 51 to get right with the Lord so ushers if you don't mind just hold on one second here's what it says Psalm 51 verse 1 this is a psalm of David the heading when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba so this is this is David's thoughts after he's been confronted. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. Blot out my rebellions. Wash me thoroughly, Psalm 51-2, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. How many times David had to analyze and think about what he had done? How could I? What was I thinking? We've all done it. If only I would have. David says, my sin is always before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. What you did, Lord, the judgment you gave, as hard as it is for me to take, is just your right to do what you did. David sinned against God first and foremost. Our sin is vertical. It's also horizontal, but first and foremost, all sin is against God. If David hadn't sinned against God, then this wouldn't have happened. Behold, here's the problem. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David's not saying he was born from an adulterous uh, relationship. He's saying, look, I have a sin nature. That's my problem. I'm a sinner by nature. I was having a discussion with a family member about this, and we're talking about little kids. And little kids are so innocent, and how could they have a sin nature? I said, wait a minute, are you thinking about the same little kids I'm thinking about? They come out crying, kicking, and screaming. They throw their Cheerios at you from the high chair. They spit out their applesauce. They're rebellious little creatures. And you don't even have to teach them to do it. You have to teach them to be good. All right, that's enough. (laughs) You get it. Thou does desire truth in the innermost being in the hidden part that will make me to know wisdom. Where does God want you to be true? In your heart. Inside. In the innermost place that nobody else sees. Look, if that's right, the rest will follow. Purify me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Lord, you've dealt with me, and it's been hard, but I'm even going to rejoice in the aftermath of your discipline. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. You said in Scripture, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Lord, I'm banking on that. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let me start over. Recreate me, Lord, and keep me on track. Let me be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Verse 11, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I saw another man to whom this had happened. I went and played the harp for him. His name was Saul, and he was terrorized by an evil spirit. And the Holy Spirit left him. And I don't want that to happen to me. Please. Now, I believe in the new covenant. We're sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit. But David saw this happen to Saul and it freaked him out. It made him fearful. I don't want to follow in his footsteps. I don't want this to happen to me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. We lose joy when we sin and cover it up. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my, my mouth may declare your praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Father, we're gonna come to your table right now. Thank you for the Lamb of God who delivers us from blood guiltiness, who delivers us from every sin we've ever committed. We rejoice in our salvation. Forgive us for the times that we fall short. Forget who we are, sin against heaven, and in your sight. Cleanse us, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. And I pray for each person that's about to come to your table, whether they're a believer, strong, walking with you, a prodigal, or maybe they don't even know you yet, I would just encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, get right with him now. You'd have no reason to take these elements unless you know Jesus. This is a celebration, a remembrance of his death for us, his crucifixion, his resurrection. If you don't know him, cry out to him. Say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Pray it right now. I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I deserve judgment. But thank you that the Lamb of God took my judgment at the cross. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you that you've created in me a clean heart as I am even praying at this moment. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. I repent of my sin. I trust you and you alone for my salvation. Cry out to him friend. Don't wait. Today's the day of salvation. Get right with him. If you're a Christian and this has hit way too close to home, just get right with him now, and he'll he'll deal with your sin. He's already dealt with it, and he'll give you a new start. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.